Welcome to the More Than Birds podcast, where we talk about more than birds. This last summer, I said to Volt, "When did I actually? When did you notice that I actually like birds?" And uh, she told me, "Well, before I could talk." And I said, "Well, how could you tell?" I, she said, "Well, I got excited looking at waterfall, and I still do. What's not to like?" Right. So you were just all your now. Your father was a birder, right? Right. And so you grew up in Ohio. Yes. And so you know, I, I the last podcast I was talking to Ken Kaufman, who's a a recent Ohio transplant. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> and you know, so what is what is the birding like in Ohio? It's pretty fantastic. Uh, it's uh, really well known for spring migration. It's my favorite place to be on the North American continent in the middle of May. Uh, even if I would, would have grown up somewhere else, it, uh, the number of warblers that come through at eye level and uh, reach out and touch them, and, uh, and it, it's just so close up there in Western Lake Erie, uh, it's a phenomenal experience, and I've done it the last 30 years. Um, Ohio birding is also one of the better places to go gulling uh, in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got, uh, I think, close to 20 species of gulls on our uh, state list. And uh, it, even though we don't get all the pub that uh, Niagara Falls does, uh, we've got just as many birds as, as they do. So, you know, so you, you're a kid and you're growing up in Ohio with, with your dad. So did your dad take you, you know, out to Lake Erie for the gulls and those kind of trips? Or was it more local patch type birding? Uh, it was more local patch uh, for quite a few years. It wasn't until, um, oh, high school or, yeah, I think it was uh, probably late 70s when I was uh, in college that, we finally found out about other spots in Ohio that I I didn't even know about, and uh, that's that's when thing my my world started to grow bigger faster. Mm-hmm. And you know, so you know, how long did you bird with your father, and when did you start kind of branching out as a teenager? Did you did you always bird all the way through, or were you like a lot of us where we kind of dipped through our teeny teenage years and pick it up in our twenties? Oh, no. I, I hid my binoculars in my jacket and I go birding. It was kind of a, um, I, I like the alone time. Uh, there was a lot of times I just birded by myself uh, in the woods across the street. Uh, I'd get off the bus and get my binoculars and uh, walk across into the woods. And just being by myself in, in nature was uh, pretty special. Philosopher John Muir says, the gateway into another universe is between two pine trees. Well, for me, it was a couple deciduous trees. <laughs> <laughs> not many pines in Ohio. <laughs> no, not a whole lot. So, you know, you're, you're burning around Ohio as a kid. You know, when did this idea of expanding past Ohio and kind of going to, you know, more regional and then to the ABA region, when did that kind of hit you? Well, I actually... Um, um, our family took some uh, trips uh, with the tent trailer, and my dad and I were made everything into a birding vacation as much as possible. Um, we actually visited quite a, quite a bit of the West uh, during my uh, late high school years, and 
Then when I got into college, uh, I came home one year and uh, a birdie friend of mine showed me this book, this little blue soft cover book called Lane Bird Finding Guide to Southeast Arizona. And it had information in it like I'd never seen before. Even though it looked like somebody mimeographed some typewritten pages on a manual typewriter with like the letter K, you know, hovering a little bit above the line. And it, it looked pretty poorly done, but the information was stuff I'd never seen before. So I took a road trip in, uh, in 81 or 82 and uh, drove from Ohio out to uh, Arizona to uh, test out the, the lane guide. And sure enough, I ended up just with a stunning list of birds I, I didn't even dream possible. And um, so I went to Tucson Audubon when I was down there because I thought, man, I got to get one of these myself. And I noticed they had, oh, California, uh, Arizona, Texas, uh, Florida, Colorado. I bought them all. <laughs> oh, the, 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 ABI, the ABA, the spiral bound guides? Uh, I, actually, um, it was before uh, ABA owned them. I had the uh, just the regular soft cover thing that looked more like a thick comic book, right? Uh, and then uh, later upgraded to the spiral bound uh, ABA slash lane guide uh, bird fighting guides. But it was, another book that affected me was uh, Roger Torrey Peterson's book "Dozen Birding Hotspots," which kind of took you know a dozen of his favorite things, places to go, and and um, uh, wrote about kind of a month-by-month thing, uh, where to go and what to do. And, and uh, I thought, well, co- this combined with the stuff that I got from the, the bird finding guide, I wonder what would happen if somebody would do this all in one year. What would that be like? And that was probably the first seed of a big year back in the early 80s. So you were, you were pondering it. Even back in the 80s about, oh, there's a possibility for a bigger. Because I didn't think I'd ever have the money or the time. uh, And it it was just a kind of a daydream. And uh, but it's something I thought about a lot. And the strategy really intrigued me to try to to, uh, get the timing of the birds and uh, the, you know, the birds in the north that came down in winter and. And the, the birds in the south in summer, the breeding birds, southeastern Arizona, uh, specialty birds in Texas and uh, Florida, California. So it's, uh, it's a pretty cool thing. So when you started pondering this I, this concept of doing a big year, did you start, you know, kind of, did you do like an Ohio big year or kind of, you know, the mid Midwest big year or did you just jump all in? No, I, I, um, in the mid '80s, I, I got married and was living in Oklahoma. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, married kind of slows things down on the on the birding front. Yeah. Uh, then uh, then I moved to uh, Maryland, and uh, things didn't work out with the with the marriage and and this. I think even without the birding, it wouldn't have worked because. I, computer programmer and a fitness instructor kind of had different lifestyles. I was a morning person. She was an evening person and just not a lot of like things. But, you know, uh, being young and dumb, it's susceptible to stupid decisions. And, well, I, you know, it, 
I have to look at it now and say, looking back on my life, had it not been for that marriage and had it not gone through a divorce and had a pain, very painful time in my life, um, I probably wouldn't have thrown myself into the big year the way that I did. Right. And had done, uh, say I'd only gotten to 698 species, wouldn't be in the book, wouldn't be in the movie, and, and I wouldn't be here. So right. thank you, my ex, wherever you are. <laughs> I think we all go through that. I, I have a friend who has a theory. He calls them practice. The first wife is practice. <laughs> <laughs> you figure out what to do wrong. So, you know, part of, part of, you know, a debate about, you know, big years and especially big days is, you know, identifying birds strictly by ear. And mm-hmm. so you're kind of known, you know, for your abilities in ear birding. So, what? you know, what, what are your, what are your, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go ahead. You? Yeah. Uh, so what are your thoughts about, you know, identifying a bird, you know, just by vocalization? Have to be pretty careful. Um, there are, I don't know how many times I've been fooled by mockingbirds. I hear just one call uh, or call something out really quickly. I don't know how many times I've, I've had to uh, take the foot out of my mouth and uh, I'll go back at my word and say, oh, nope, that's, that's just a, uh, a mockingbird doing that. Because I've, I've heard mockingbirds do all manner of calls. Like yeah. just this winter. Um, I was birding locally, and this good year for white wing crossbill. And I thought I heard flight call of white wing crossbill, and uh, then I heard it again. I thought, oh, that's close. Uh, it was a mockingbird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, and I get fooled by starling still. Yeah, well, you know, it's occasionally it's like one all kind of random sounds, and then they just pop something out that's dead on. Yeah. Then you, if you do the follow-up... I had one do um, a um, western wood peewee in March in mm-hmm. Nebraska. I went to look for it, but it was the starling doing the call. Oh, we're still doing a western wood peewee in March? <laughs> I'll, I'll, Go ahead. Oh, I always say about starlings is I, I used to live next to uh, a jail, basically. It was, it was the county sheriff and the jail was my backyard. Uh-huh. And so the every time the cops would leave in the morning, they would test their they would test the sirens and all the sounds in the car. Uh-huh. So all the starlings in the neighborhood did the police cars. You know, me 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 all those sounds. That's, That's all funny. they did all day long. <laughs> that can kill there. Go to Arizona back in '94, uh, and uh, back then I had cassette tapes, and I must have had my windows open or cleaning or something while I was practicing uh, the the calls. And one morning I walked out to my car to go to work in Maryland and I heard, wit wheat, which is a call of uh, uh, curb Bill Thrasher. And I looked around and there's a mockingbird, uh, which had found a new sound it really liked and it imitated it just wonderfully. So when you were kind of learning calls, did you use, you know, back then the tapes and then the CDs, now it's all MP3, but did you use those then kind of field verify? Is that was kind of your learning process? Uh, yeah, I I tried uh, to stuff too much in early on, and it was overwhelming to try to learn things. I, and now I, I, I don't, I never practice more than three new bird songs at a, at a time. 
mm-hmm. uh, because at, it's really beyond. You have to learn how you learn. And for me, I can't focus on more than three at a time uh, and, and do them well. And uh, I usually try to listen to something and then go outside uh, wherever I'm at and uh, hope that I get to hear what I just practiced uh, so that it kind of sticks. Mm-hmm. If I can track down a bird making the sound and then watch it do it, that's even better. Right. So uh, those are some of the things that I do, I do now that are, are far more effective than than what I used to do, just a, uh, a wholesale listen to all 37 warblers in the East and hope that I I, I knew them when I went out. <laughs> and so do you do uh... – because I I am a non fan of phonetics, uh-huh. I despise phonetics. I would rather just listen to the sound and memorize, you know, the particular exactly. sound, and then go out and verify it. Are you a fan of phonetics, or by actually listening to the real sounds? As as a kid, I learned um, some of the phonetics that were in the the Peterson guide, and some of them I thought were pretty good, and some of them not as much. And I've, I found that I did better if I listened to the sound myself and tried to come up with my own phonetics. Mm-hmm. And that that was something that that association, it made me involved in the bird song itself. I had to listen to it to try to figure out what it sounded like. And so when I came up with something, it it worked for me. Like a, a, the blue-winged warbler, people call it, you know, the bee buzz. Mm-hmm. But, for me, it's the eBay bird. eBay. <laughs> That's actually better. <laughs> and and so you know you're learning the now. Do you record as well, so you can go home with your own recordings? I do have recording uh, some uh, uh, cheap recording equipment. Um, uh, I, I just have found it incredibly difficult. Uh, the noise pollution is. Is pretty fantastic. I, finding a quiet place to record is really it, it's hard. Uh, so I, I don't and that and get it at the time. It's, you think photography takes a lot of time? Wow, recording even more so. You know, I have a, a friend that I actually birded with this past weekend who just got his own record. You know, a nice digital recorder and a shotgun mic. Right. Oh, it looks like an infuriating activity. <laughs> <laughs> I went out with them, and I'm like, "Oh, really?" <laughs> you know. I have I recently just used my iPhone just to record things mm-hmm. with no connection at all, just an iPhone, and uh, have gotten some fairly reasonable uh, recordings. It was in uh, Southern Texas that I recorded uh, a group of great kiskadees uh, uh, interacting, and it turned out pretty nice. And uh, some. Um, I heard some alarm calls of uh, plain chachalaca in the bushes, and you couldn't even see the chachalacas, but you could hear the sound. It's kind of a unique, uh, unique sound. So I, I recorded that too. So that, I have fun uh, doing that kind of stuff, but I really don't have the time. Like when I go out and bird it for recording, you have to focus on the recording part. So you're not going to build a big list, and you may not see very many birds. Right, and you not only have to wait for the bird to sing, but for the sound, the ambient sound to be as good as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I've actually used my iPhone um, in Bozeman. We actually had a rose-breasted grosbeak. They showed up for the last three years in a row. Really? 
Oh wow! And so I, you know, took record, and I used the same thing. I held the iPhone way up above my head and took recordings, and they were reasonable. You know, uh-huh. did it nest there? You know, there's anecdotal evidence that it did because um, another birder down there, John Parker, has a picture of an apparent hybrid. So this, you know, the second year hybrid. So he might have found himself a black-headed girlfriend. <laughs> huh? Well, closely yeah. related. Yeah, and, and the phones are really similar. Yeah, but you know, he he just showed up, and like the first time, it was he thought it was going to be one of those rarities that was there for a limited amount of time, and then leave. And he stuck yeah. the whole summer, and you go, well, that was a great summer, and then he shows up, you know, another two years. So it's going to be interesting if he shows up this year. Amazing. Yeah, but you know, it's kind of weird how you have. You know these rarities that then become habitual. <laughs> right. They find a spot and they're what you know. The about doing a big year is you travel to a lot of places. I, I've traveled to some new places and birded in some new areas I'd never birded in before, and I, I got to see and hear stuff I'd never dreamed I'd get to hear. Like uh, I got to see. I was watching pinion jays in uh, Helena, Montana. And uh, heard black bell cuckoo in the background. I had never made the association that they were even together. Yeah, you, you know, and it's funny that any time in Montana when we get a black bell cuckoo, it's this weird scattering of birds. And so I think it's a lot. It's a lot that we don't have a lot of birders. And we have a huge land area. Mm-hmm. But it's like you know, we kind of have this detection of you know one here, and then three hundred miles away, there's another detection. <laughs> it's, I mean, we've had yellow-billed cuckoo, you know, on the Yellowstone River. And it's, you know, I think they're there every year, but there's just not enough birders to find out, you know. So we run into those problems where, you know, the other states. In Ohio that uh, don't get coverage either. Yeah. Southeastern Ohio is like no man's land. Who knows what's there? Right. <laughs> Well, Montana, it, it really is. It's it's just around the urban areas where there's real, where there's a fair number of birders, mm-hmm. and you know I, you know I've birded here for you know over twenty years now, and grew up here, and I'm still finding little spots. You know, oh, there's a new little spot. That's a great you know, and you know we, uh, buddy and I did a big year some time ago just in Montana. And we found all sorts of new places doing that. <laughs> You'd asked me earlier, uh, did I uh, do a big year before I did uh, the North American ba- or ABA big year? Right. Um, I did a dry run in uh, 97. Um, I had done my research. One of the things I did was the, um, the bird finding guides had the bar charts in the back of the book. And uh, I made a numerical representation out of all the, the, the bar charts uh, and um, put them in a database. And um, so then I, uh, I, I wrote some queries that uh, gave me what I felt was, you know, the best places to go see these tougher-to-find species of birds. Um, so my, my core places to go were Southern California, Southeastern Arizona, uh, South Texas uh, and South Florida. 
And so I was a Maryland birder, so I birded in Maryland and took one week to go to each of those places. I spent $5,500, took four weeks of vacation, ended up with 537 species of birds just in those four areas. Oh, wow. Which told me that uh, getting a big number was uh, not beyond the realm of possibility while working. And, and, and so, you know, when you're working, you're a computer programmer and you're working at a nuclear plant. That seems yeah. like a very non-birdie job. <laughs> it was a very non-birdie job. <laughs> so, you know, what, what got you into, uh, into programming versus, you know, wildlife biology or ornithology? Or... Money. Money. <laughs> yeah, well, you have, to have this thing that uh, when in birding, you can choose a jo- any job in birding. And uh, chances are you're going to be working for somebody else, doing what somebody else thinks is important, and you may not be as into it as they are. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have days that seems like it's long, arduous, mind-numbing work uh, over and over and over again. It's important, but you're outdoors and you get to work with birds and the pay is not so great still. And then you have the other option, which you go into something that makes you a lot more money in a shorter amount of time, but then you're always striving for the time to get away to do what you really love to do, and that's be out in the field burning. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, still to this day, I'm uh, I, like right now, I, I work three days a week uh, part-time at a place called uh, Emergency Medicine Physicians in uh, Canton, Ohio, mm-hmm. and uh, I write uh, database reports for them. Um, and at the same time, I'm uh, constantly thinking of um, – I, I use data every day, so uh, in analyzing data, I'm always thinking, well, how can I apply this to birding? Because one of the things I want to, I do want to do bird-related work, it's just that I want to do my own projects, so I'm probably not going to get any government funding for the stuff I want to do. Right. But I, I want to use eBird and the data in eBird to plan a more efficient uh, big year. And uh, just to see what, I'm not sure that I will ever do that again because I need three things. I need one, good health. Like right now, I'm not in good enough shape to climb up after the Kalima Warbler. Number two, um, I need um, a whole year off. I don't want to ever do the work and mm-hmm. big it, It's just, it, that is a daunting task. Yeah. And three, um, Gobs of money. <laughs> Gobs of money, yeah. Um, well, you know, it's funny. When when I did my Montana big year, I was working for Right Now Technologies. Uh-huh. And I was a sales engineer, so I was kind of half sales guy, half programmer or tweaker more. <laughs> and, you know, that it was very hard to, to have this full-time job where I'm on a plane about three weeks out of every four and still trying to do a big year. Oh, man. And, you know, we got over 300 species inside the state, so it's not so oh, bad. Congratulations. <laughs> we, were, we were the first folks to get over 300, and it's since been broken. The guy, Gary Swant, got the 317, so. <laughs> yeah, well, it, you, you probably have opportunity to get even higher than that, but in such a big state, the bigger the state, the harder it is. 
Uh, you yeah. might have more opportunity, but the travel is just would be insanely difficult because you can't unless you had your own private plane. That yeah. uh, just getting around one end of the state to the other is uh, pretty incredible. Well, it's like you know I tried to explain to people we do a, a, a big day every year, and so we're, we're assembling a group of four guys <laughs> for a big day. And in Montana, our big day is over 800 miles of driving. Yeah, I could believe that. You know, and it's like we go from the west side of Glacier Park all the way to the east side of the state. You know, so, wow. it's, so and you just, when you do a big year, it just compounds all of that driving. In, in some ways, it's easier because um, a lot of the birds are closer to the airports and you can fly and, and get their in more reasonable hours than you can driving across Montana. This is true. You know, in Montana, it's, geez, you know, if you want to get, you know, like, I live fairly close to Glacier, and to me, mm-hmm. fairly close is, it's still a three-hour drive. Right. You know, and that's if we don't stop in McDonald's or anything else. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's daunting, just the logistics of it. And so uh, yeah. that, and and the other thing about it, if we have such forced environments, when we do a big day, you know, we have to rely on ear birding, especially those first morning hours. It's just, you know, McGilvery's warbler, move on. <laughs> you know, so we it's the kind of birding we're involved in. So, get back to to you and in, in the big year, you know. So you you thought there was a possibility for a big year. You gotten in what was it five six five seventies? Oh wow. Uh, Thirty-seven that uh, in ninety-seven, right? And so, when when did it kind of formulate that you were ready to do a full-blown big year? Well, after I'd gotten to five hundred thirty-seven, uh, and I was planning to go to Attu the following year, I thought, well, if I tacked on those four weeks, so five hundred thirty-seven, if I birded mainland Alaska, I bet there's close to 50 species of birds that I could get in Alaska that would put me at 587 and I could eke out another 13 and I will have worked a full year, had kept my job and gotten 600, which is an extraordinary number while working. And uh, so that's, that was my plan when I started out. So there were a number of birds I just uh, didn't even go after because they're uh, they're in areas where you don't stand to add as many species of birds. It's a numbers game. You go mm-hmm. to places that you get the most species of birds. It's that you don't care about the other places you do. It's just that not that year. Right. <laughs> yep. The best places at the best time. It's like doing a big day. Man, if you don't have that thing planned out logistically, I within five minutes I'm going to be here and here and how long it takes to get to you. To the next spot and know what you're after targets at every place unless you have that in line you're not going to going to make it same thing with doing a big year you you have to know what times of the year you're going to go after what birds and when you go to an area just target birds for everything and and, and without it i'd have been lost i'd, I'd probably it randomly ended up around 600 um, and that's only half the effort to get to seven Oh, you still there? Okay, you kind of buzzed out yeah, there. The, I just stopped. So, so, um, so you were you were very analytical on how you planned your your big year then. Well, that's part of the fun is the planning, the the whole logistics things because you not only have to have your A plan, 
but your B plan, C plan, and D plan, because what happens when you uh, you go after a bird and, and don't go, don't get it? Mm-hmm. Do I have other times of the year and other places that I can, your backup places that to get it? And there are some birds where you don't have very many backup places. Right. But narrow window birds where it's a small area geographically and a small window of time, and those are your tough birds. And, and so how did you start your big year? Did you just bird your local patch that, you know, January 1st, or how did I you start? I my local patch, but I really, I, I actually worked the first six weeks pretty hard, I, including weekends. I only had 115 species of birds by mid-February. So uh, that was not such a sterling start. Uh, But then I had four weeks off between contracts. And uh, I flew 17,000 miles, went to California, Arizona, Texas, um, Minnesota, and Oklahoma um, in a very short amount of time. And and, um, and got the list up to about 375 Sorry, the things in the background are emails. <laughs> oh, that's I, I know the same buzz. I was looking for it myself. <laughs> uh, so did so you started off California and Arizona were your first travel destinations? Right. I, Arizona was my very first one. Um, the Nuttings Flycatcher had showed mm-hmm. up back in December. And, of course, the other guys, uh, the rich guys, were able to go after it right away and, who had lots of time. And then me... Uh, I was just waiting till I had some time off to see what was still available. And the Nuttings flycatcher, I didn't know how long it was going to hang. And once I made my reservations to go to um, to Arizona, I that, that had my fingers crossed. So that was my first rare bird. But I also found out something I hadn't planned on, that Arizona is a fabulous place for sparrows in winter. Mm-hmm. I mean... And Berezids out the wazoo. Mm-hmm. I think I had 18 species of uh, sparrows, tohees, juncos, longspurs uh, when when I was there in '98. And so, Sorry. did did you did you tell anyone that you were doing a big year? I mean, other than close, you know. I had some local friends that I told that I was going to go for a personal record of 600, but no, I really. Really didn't make it known uh, that I was I was doing a big year to start, um, but then after I got rolling and I was uh, after that first month, I felt uh, pretty confident that I'd gotten off to a pretty good start. And then in uh, first week of April, I went to Florida. And then the third week of April, I I went to Texas and I had had nine days in the third week of Texas, and it just happened to hit uh, a, a decent day. I wouldn't really call it a fallout day, but you know they make a, a pretty big deal in the uh, in the movie. But I hit the best day in two weeks uh, that year. Um, had 134 species of birds uh, in in a day, and, and that's that's a pretty good day. Uh, lots of warblers and, and ton of migrants. Because what you want to do in a big year, you know this, right. you got to hit migration fall and spring because. Right. Once you get to winter or summer, you spend a lot of time spinning your wheels trying to get breeding birds or wintering areas, and it, it just becomes nightmarish to get around too. Right, and and and, and so you this was at High Island. Yes. Yeah, 
And so you, you get over 130 at High Island. And so where, where are you at total by then? Um, by the time I left Texas, I was at 500, mm-hmm. uh, just over 500. I think when I, on the plane flying to uh, Attu is where I met Sandy Camito, and I had 508, which I was, I had gotten 537 the whole year before, and I was already at 508, and I, uh, I felt really good about my, my year and getting to 600. And uh, that's when I met Sandy. And, and I told Sandy I was doing a personal big year. And uh, he said, well, what, he didn't beat around the bush. Well, what's your number? And I told him 508. And uh, I said, well, where are you at? He says, oh, 609. <laughs> <laughs> it blew me away because, you know, I'd, I'd work really hard to, to get to this number. I only knew of maybe, you know, 20, 30 birds that I'd left off on purpose, uh, not to, not to chase because they're just in areas where I was going to get as many species of birds. And <laughs> right. Why, wow. So it was then that I not only impressed, but um, also figured he was probably doing a big year. He was doing and, and did you start feeling a kind of a sense of competition between – you and Sandy well, and Al and oh, part of part of my doing the the big year five hundred thirty seven the year before, I think somebody had gotten six hundred one and they were like number one in ninety seven. And I thought, man, if I get six hundred, I got a shot at being the top of the list for a year, which is be a pretty cool thing, you know, Birdie Magazine, right? So uh, then I find out, well, maybe I'll be number two. And then I, I bumped into Al during the summer, and I realized, man, I might be lower. And who who knows who else is is doing this? Yeah, and 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 that was a particularly good year, right? That to kind of the, all the all the gods aligned and and things went and, well. Oh, they, they really did. I was lucky everywhere. I mean, people talk about Attu, and that was a that was a trip for the ages. But all three of us were there. Um, but the rest of the year, I I was just lucky beyond belief with so many birds. And uh, once once uh, summer rolled around, that's when I started cold calling people out of the ABA directory. And I, like when I came to Montana, uh, I just would work. I called them up. Hi, my name is Greg Miller. Do oh, you who did you call? You you glitched out there for a second. Um, I called Montana. I'm trying to think of who I called. Is, is there a, you know, um, is it Helen? Helen Carlson? Yes. Helen I, used to be a cook for uh, wings up in the Pribilofs. Yes. Yes, indeed. That That is the lady that, that uh, took me out. I think I had 10 or 11 targets for uh, Montana. And uh, she was, I called, called somebody else and they gave me her name. And when I called her, she says, oh, I will take you out myself. And uh, she was just a wonderful person. Was she and still I, driving then? Yes. So you didn't get to be one of her boys. Because now <laughs> she doesn't drive. So now she has a whole collection of boys who take her out. <laughs> you know? it, it was a, a grand experience. Well, that, you know, that was a lot of fun. So, so yeah, I, I met a lot of people just cold calling and, and uh, going to going to all these places because what I was hoping for is inside information, people to point me in the right direction because I didn't have 
uh, APA uh, bird finding guides to all those places. Right. So I, I made do with, uh, you know, trying to dig up information from local birders. And so what were your Montana birds that you were trying to get? Uh, see if I, I, I know Pinion Jay was on there. Um, let's see, Calliope Hummingbird. Oh. Uh, Black-headed Grosbeak, Western Tanager. Uh, not tough birds. It was my first mm. trip to the mountains, Rocky Mountains. Right. Mountain Bluebird was was on it. Um, mountain Chickadee. I, these are you know here I am at. Uh, by the time I got to Montana, holy smokes! I I was already um, in the high five hundreds, and I had, I didn't have all these montane species. So I had a one week layover in Minneapolis. Ended up driving to uh, Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So it was it was a worthwhile trip because that put me over uh, over six hundred species of birds. Did you drive up the Black uh, Beartooth Plateau for Black Rosie? One of my luckiest birds of all was Black Rosie Finch. Mm-hmm. I I don't know how many times I've been there and not seen them. And that year oh. I was there by myself and I had nobody to celebrate with. <laughs> number six. It was number six hundred. In, 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 oh, was it? <laughs> so I hear there it was up at the uh, what's that little place that like the highest place? Uh, there's a little building that says uh, highest restaurant or. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I can't remember what it's I called. Can't remember okay. the name of it. But I've got a video of myself saying, "I just got 600, and it was a black rosy finch." I can't believe it. And there's nobody else here to celebrate with me. <laughs> and probably no one knew what you were celebrating. They'd be like. Okay, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, who, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it's amazing. That that, that species in, in, in particular is even for, you know, that I, I'm lucky enough to see it, you know, fairly regularly. But, you know, the times I've gone up to the Beartooth Plateau or some other mountain range, I'll miss them. Uh-huh. And yet I'll be driving through some town and I'll check out a feeder and there's 30 of them on one feeder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my my new favorite place for uh, rosy finches is uh, San Crest in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Sit inside and eat a bowl of chili and a melted grilled cheese sandwich uh, while you're nice and toasty, and watch all three rosy finches outside of the feeders. See, I always think rosy finches to appreciate you have to have a degree of discomfort. <laughs> oh. That's normally very, very true. They're <laughs> a seriously cold weather bird. And yes, and horrendous driving conditions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, the one the one location that kind of intrigues me because I've never been there is Attu. You know, mm-hmm. what, it, what was it like to get there and to spend the amount of time that you spent there? I, I was there for two weeks and three days, I believe, and... I remember the, I, I had read for years about all these reports and I'd seen pictures online of all these rare birds. And I, when I looked at the checklist, I noticed that two thirds of it was waterfowl and shorebirds. So that's what I spent the most time studying uh, when, it, when it went out. Uh, I remember landing and thinking to myself, it, was, it didn't look very magical. It was pretty forlorn. But 
I was there. This is the place where everything is supposed to happen. So I was waiting for the very first Atu bird. So we got our stuff together. We landed on this airstrip. There's no tower. It's a, it's a land by sight uh, kind of thing. And uh, we were on this old World War II uh, uh, charter uh, jet prop plane. And uh, it rattled and shook. And you're still feeling like shaking, you know, when, when you got off. It's vibrating. And uh, we, we got our stuff and, and uh, started carrying it back to home base, which was uh, World War II cement barracks. And uh, I, I remember stopping about halfway back at just this little puddle. And uh, on Attu, they have, they have trees. They're willow trees that are about two feet tall. They're no bigger than waist tall. That's the tree. It's, <laughs> it's such inclement weather that nothing grows any taller than that. Right. And, and the habitat is marshy tundra. So it's a, it's a slog. It's wet. Um, and it was brown and kind of ugly, a very stark place. But we stopped at this this little wet area in kind of a an area you might expect a snipe, like uh, here in the, in the states. And and uh, the what the first bird, the first tick, wood sandpiper. And uh, normally, any trip to to Attu, if you got a wood sandpiper or two that was a good trip uh, normally what I was hoping for was um, double digits of Asian vagrants because there were some trips where you get single digits and a few trips had maybe 10 or 12 birds and that was a really good trip we ended up with 21 or 22 it was phenomenal Asian vagrants and so what was, you know, you had the wood snipe, but what was the big mega Asian vagrant that you guys got on that year? Uh, the, the the two that were probably equally rare, uh, Oriental Greenfinch and Pintail Snipe were were two mega. I, both of them were second North American records. Um, I missed the yellow-throated bunting, which was a North American first, which was the second two weeks which Al and Sandy both got. Oh, so um, they stayed longer? Right. The first three days I was out there, we, we had winds out of the... Uh, winds from the west off the Siberian continent. Uh, 70 mile an hour sustained winds at some point in time. It, it, it just three days it blew so hard. People were falling off their bikes. It was hard to walk. Uh, we didn't see many birds. It was It was a really tough slog. But the third day, the wind started to subside. We were, our group was eating lunch out at Navy Town. It was a lot of wreckage from World War II, and uh, we're uh, sitting on tussocks, uh, just kind of these clumps that were still dry, and, and uh, birds started to fall out of the sky. It was just literally like the sky was manufacturing, poom 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 poom, and. Well, the first bird we got identified was an alabac pipit, and then another, and another, and another, and then a red-throated pipit, uh, brambling, rustic bunting. By this time, our leader got on the on the uh, phone. I think it was Paul Sykes that day, and he radios home base on CB radio. 
Everybody needs to drop everything they're doing and come to Navy Town. It is raining birds. <laughs> so I explained some of the species that we already had, and everybody dropped everything, all 60 of us, all, all the different groups, all bicycled to our location. And all afternoon, birds kept falling in. And from the, the next few days were just insane because you could barely keep up with with all chasing all the rarities. Mm-hmm. And, and and so you get around the, that whole island on bicycle on mountain bikes. Is that the deal? Uh, actually, no, not the whole island. Just the southeast portion of it, uh, from the southernmost point to the outermost point that we covered with regularity. It was about fourteen miles. Um, and, uh, you could travel about nine of that on a bicycle, uh, on a, uh, dirt path mm-hmm. and the other five was hiking. And, and so did you pick up some of the, the attitude, like, you know, whiskered auklet and some of those parakeet auklet and I still need whiskered auklet for my, uh, life list. So that so, was uh, the big evade. So have you been back to attitude since? I, I have. Uh, I went in 2000, uh, September 2000 for the uh, the last trips they, mm-hmm. uh, that they, uh, Larry Balch took. Right. And so is that re- that's reopened now, isn't it? Uh, it actually never closed, closed. It, Larry just kept, uh, he quit doing that. Mm-hmm. I heard all kinds of reports and stuff about how they tore up the runway and blew up the Coast Guard building, and I, I was just repeating stories that I heard, but I talked to John Pushock this year who uh, with the uh, Z-Bird Tours, and uh, he, he takes people out to Attu, and he says, no, there's still a runway out there. Um, it's just no charters are going out there, because uh, he uh, takes a boat, I believe, from Cold Bay, which is a long haul to get to, to Attu. No, they go by boat? Yeah, they go by boat, and then you need to take like a um, a little Zodiac uh, to carry bikes back and forth to the mainland, and, and uh, you're, oh, wow. you're in the bay. And <laughs> so what, that has to be like a what a two or three day boat ride. Yes, it, 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 at least. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's dedication. <laughs> Yeah, and and you're riding. Uh, you're you're probably traveling through the Bering Sea to get there. Yeah, that there's a curve with the Aleutians. I imagine the straightest shot would be uh, through the Bar- South Bering Sea. You know, it's kind of funny. I always have this uh, romance about Atu and all the Aleutians because uh, my great uncle, who just recently passed away in World War II, was on an old World War One era submarine. Patrolling oh, wow. the Aleutians, uh-huh. and so he has he has he had stories about you know Attu and Dutch Harbor and all those islands. Oh wow! You know, and they had the story of you know um, the one time they had the the submarine and they saw a Japanese destroyer by Attu and they sunk to the bottom, uh-huh. and they had to shut off everything, all the power, diesel, everything. And they oh, laid, and they actually laid the submarine on the bottom of the ocean, and st- stayed there for three days. I yeah yeah. Whether they could hear the Japanese, you know, going in circles and throwing depth charges down, and it. Uh, what happened was is when they landed when they went on the bottom, uh, the plates that allow the water to go in and out of the ballasts, 
right? Broke. Oh, no. So there's some engineer in the boat to figure out, okay, we can get up, but we can never dive again. Oh, no. And it's destroyer. So literally they're running out of oxygen, and they're shivering and cold and miserable. They came up, and literally they played hopscotch going around the, the lee side of islands of on the surface, avoiding this Japanese destroy all the way to Dutch Harbor. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's so, quite the adventure. That is an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you're, you, you do this big day, and the biggest adventure, you know, when I read, you know, like a lot of people, I read the book and I saw the movie, is going for the Himalayan snowcock. Uh-huh. So, Probably the most thrilling ride I, I had all year was that helicopter ride. And so had that pilot, had he taken like other birds up there that he knew that's why people were going up there? Or? I, I actually, that was a tip from Sandy Comito uh, that he, he found them via helicopter. And I said, really? So I contacted, uh, I, I looked in the yellow pages uh, at Elko, Nevada. Uh, and I found this company, uh, Aero Nevada or something. And, and uh, I called them up and asked them about helicopter rides to see Himalayan snowcock. Oh, you want to talk to uh, to the pilot? I forget his name right now. Uh, he just recently uh, died in a helicopter crash. Just oh no, oh, last month I think. Yeah, I, I just found out about it. So uh, he was quite the character, you know, ex-military and pretty. Uh, uh, he had fun giving us a, a good thrill. And we were, uh, I remember when we got to see the snow. So, yeah, I, I talked to them and they had taken four, 50, about 50 trips and had only missed the snowcock once. And that's because the guy had to get back to the airport early. They didn't have a whole hour. So we felt, I, I split the trip with Al. He didn't pay for it like in the movie. Uh, but it's still less expensive uh, for an hour in a helicopter. We we flew up to 11,000 feet, and uh, it was one of the most spectacular trips. Not only thrilling, because we were close to cliffs and rocks often, and the, made that helicopter do things I didn't know helicopters did. It was a bubble chopper, so you could you could see out out the bottom, and it, right. you know, the, the Ruby Mountains have these really steep sheer drop-offs. We'd be flying along, whoo, the ground falls away a thousand feet below you, whoa, and your heart just kind of goes, Whoop. but we saw, you know, golden eagles at eye level, um, we saw a, uh, a herd of bighorn sheep, a mountain goat in the snow, uh, it just, was a phenomenal trip, and we flew up between two snowstorms uh, to get uh, the snowcock. So, if we were flying at sixty knots, and this large bird comes from behind us, and Al sees it first. It's out the back and below us. It overtakes us and goes out in front of us. It goes through this like a V-shaped formation of rocks. It just goes whoosh. It goes down, and we went through the same V-shaped thing. And I looked on either side like we didn't have a whole lot of clearance. And whoo, down we dropped, too. <laughs> we gave, gave chase and we got to see it a couple of times. And, and, it's cool. 
And so, you know, that that is so did was that bird you saw that bird when you're already in the six hundreds already? Oh yeah, that was number seven hundred eight. Seven hundred eight. Yeah. So, you know, you're you're doing the big year and you're starting so at what point did you did you kind of figure out that Sandy was going to win this contest, for lack of better words? Well, the, the time that I got the closest was uh, in early, late August, early September. The last I had talked to Sandy, he had uh, 712, I think, the week before. And I had, uh, September the 5th is when I broke 700. I ended up 701 by September the 5th. Mm-hmm. So I figured even if he'd added a few more, I was in a st- within a stone's throw. What I didn't have were the multiple trips to Alaska in the fall that he did. Right. No, that, that just he made eight trips to Alaska that year. He made eight. Yeah, eight. I didn't make eight. He made eight. Oh. I went to then I went to uh, Gamble, and then I did mainland Alaska. So I still have some some common ordinary birds I missed. I missed Arctic warbler by a day. It's a late migrant to Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, I still don't have the whiskered auklet, bristle-tailed curlew. It didn't take time to go after. It just oh, it just didn't happen. No, it, <laughs> I, I was I was pretty short on money then, and and uh, renting a car in Nome was uh, was not on the list. <laughs> And it's horrible <laughs> hitchhiking. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of traffic. <laughs> no. So, do, do you, do you, Al and Sandy, do you guys ever conversate and share notes? And actually, we all got together in uh, in uh, December mm-hmm. down in the Lower Rio Grande Valley. In fact, uh, ten of us who've broken 700 uh, in a year were uh, together for. With uh, we had dinner together, we went birding together. And uh, shared a lot of stories. It was a lot of fun. I've actually uh, gotten to bird with Al a couple of times since then. Uh, I, one day I was I, I flew out to Denver to go birding with Mark Masick, the uh, the book mm-hmm. author. And uh, one of the things I needed after my big year was Gunnison sage grouse because it wasn't added until '99, uh, I think, mm-hmm. the year after the big year. So. Uh, I wanted to go see Gunnison sage grouse, so he took me out to Gunnison. We're waiting for it to get light, and as just as it's getting light, Mark says, "That looks like Al's car." <laughs> and sure enough, it's it's Al Levington. So we all went to breakfast uh, that day. That was back in two thousand four or five. I don't remember. Yeah. So yeah. So this whole thing, you know, that Mark wrote the book, The Big Year, and that's become, you know, one of those birding Bibles that every birder has a copy of it in their library, (laughs) every (laughs) decent birder, and, you know, it eventually gets picked up for the movie. Yeah. And you were, you know, when I first heard that, you know, that they're making The Big Year a movie, and it's going to have Steve Martin and Jack Black and uh, uh, Wilson, Luke Wilson, yeah, Owen Wilson, yeah. And I was like, I was going, oh, they're gonna make us as birders. They're gonna make us look like fools. <laughs> yes, I was so scared of that. I was like, oh no, they're gonna ruin the book. But 
I found it to be a terrific movie that was accurate. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was going to say that I found it. I found it to be a you know a terrific movie that didn't make fun of burgers, but made fun of the situations we put ourselves in. Yes, and it, it, anybody it, can make fun of that because we 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 all put ourselves in really stupid situations. Right, it happens. It does. This is the nature of the of the activity, and and you were the birding consultant. On the movie, yes. <laughs> so what what entails being the birding consultant on a movie? Well, the first thing that uh, that I I got this uh, little red flashing light on my answer machine. I I go uh, uh, click on it and uh, uh, hi, this is Brad Van Aragon, line producer for the Big Year. Uh, we'd like to know if you want to be bird consultant for the movie The Big Year. Give us a call back. I played it the second time to make sure they had the right guy because I I, I didn't win. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not even the winner. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do? A, a movie consultant? So I called him back, and uh, and uh, I was part of me was all excited and and proud because wow, Hollywood movie. And so the first thing I asked him is. Am I, am I going to get to meet Jack Black, Steve Martin, and Owen Wilson? They said, well, they work really hard and long days. You'll get to see them in person acting, but uh, you probably won't meet them. So I said, well, okay, it's still a pretty pretty cool thing to, to get to meet these, you know, to see these guys. Yeah. So I thought, well, it'd be, I'm a curious guy. This would be kind of cool to watch. I hung up the phone. It's all happy. Bird consultant. i about five seconds, it hits me. This is a comedy, and Jack Black, Steve Martin, and Owen Wilson are going to be playing in it. Hmm. What kind of movie is this going to be? Right. They are going to skewer birding, and my name is Mud. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be off the list. <laughs> yeah. So the next morning, I got uh, the script for the movie, 120 pages, and... Uh, they wanted me to go through it and uh, make it as believable as possible. So I figure I've only got one shot at this. So I went through with a fine-tooth comb every reference to every bird, whether it was part of the dialogue or not. I looked up everything that was said and done about every species, the time of the year that it was supposed to be, the season, the location, the habitat, blah, 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 blah. So I made recommendations, keep this, scratch this, or here are some viable alternatives to make it more believable. And I, I said to him, they, this is a week before filming begins, so I figure they're not going to make any of these changes. I, I, I don't know why they did. They got me as bird consultant. So I get there uh, in Vancouver, and uh, I read over the script changes, They've made about fifty percent of the changes that I've I've asked for. Oh wow! And, and well, some of the some of the cringe factor bird uh, scenes are still there, <laughs> like the the pink footed goose on top of a mountain in Colorado <laughs> with the steaming pool, <laughs> and even the pink footed goose down in High Island in Texas, with the habitat where. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, they they kept those in because. The whole script is written around a wild goose chase. <laughs> right. 
Oh dear. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not. I'm not a scriptwriter. These guys know better than I do. Words, I know. So, uh, uh, Saturday, I was. They were going to start Monday, May the third. I was there Saturday, uh, May the first, and uh, I get this call on my cell phone. Hi, this is uh, Cy Peck, third assistant director for the movie The Big Year. Jack Black's people have contacted me, and um, Jack says he'd like to go birding with you tomorrow afternoon. Are you free? Oh, I don't know. Let me check my really busy schedule. <laughs> I'm a consultant. I'm always free. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, I actually had planned to go birding with some friends of mine in Vancouver, so I had to call him back and say, uh, Jack Black wants to go birding with me. I'm, I'm going to go do that. I hope you don't mind. We'll just do it in the morning. So went birding with my friends in the morning, went back to my uh, hotel five minutes before I got picked up. And I'm, they put me up at the five-star hotel, the Sutton Place, downtown uh, Vancouver. Mm. I've never been in a five-star hotel in my entire life. I'm a birder. I know some of the worst... The hotel experiences ever because <laughs> cheap. You just want to sleep somewhere and, and get out and go. I always say, as a burger, I'm a connoisseur of gas station cuisine. <laughs> exactly. I, I slept in one bed in, in uh, Delaware where the bed sagged all the way to the floor, and that, that was 80 pounds ago. <laughs> <laughs> Now you might as well just sleep on the floor. Technology. <laughs> yeah. So, so Jack Black's people, do they pick you up in a limo at the five-star hotel or oh, what? It was Cypec, uh and some of the movie crew actually picked me up at, at uh, the hotel. We, we drove over to uh, Stanley Park, and there were more people there, the props people with telescopes and binoculars for everybody, and I found out there's going to be like a dozen people from – from the set, including uh, Stuart Kornfeld, who's one of the producers who works with Ben Stiller. Uh, so all these people are there, and I'm thinking, what? A, I have no idea the burning skill of any of these people. And fortunately, there's some buffalo head on the big lake there, and so I've got scope set up and uh, showed people the buffalo head because at least it's a showy bird. And, mm -hmm. and I get this tap on my shoulder, and I turn around, and <laughs> Right there is Jack Black. And my eyes met Jack Black. My God, he's the same height as me. <laughs> and I looked at his belly and go, oh, he's almost the same girth as me, too. <laughs> oh, no. I was totally not expecting him to be vertically challenged like me. I'm only 5'7". <laughs> he, he might be 5'8". <laughs> right. Towering, towering 5'8". Yeah, well, you know... At, for some reason, I just expected somebody taller. And, and now he's in black sweatshirt and black sweats. And I looked up on top of the hill and, oh, that's his black Escalade. And he had been driven there. And uh, so this this whole group of like a dozen people around in a circle. Here's the movie star, Jack Black, who's going to be playing this character, Greg Miller. And they're meeting for the first time. And I'm not usually a person who's, uh, you know, stumbling for words, talking to any stranger. I'll talk to anybody. But at that moment, it was like somebody took a, a you know, a drain plug and just went, boop. Everything drained out, including all speech. It's all speech. 
There was no comprehensive, or there was no cognizant thought. It was empty. Hello. <laughs> so I'm looking at Jack Black, and I got nothing. <laughs> and Jack, there's this long, awkward pause. And finally, I see the corners of Jack Black's mouth kind of curl up like the Grinch who stole Christmas. And he's this long, slow smile, and he says he recognizes Starstruck. He takes a step forward. He puts his puts out his hand. Hi, I'm Jack Black. I put out my hand. I grip his hand. I'm looking at him eye to eye. Jack Black. I got nothing. <laughs> you know how you have a dream and you work really hard to do something in a dream and you work so hard that you wake yourself up? Right. It's a amount of effort of which I was able to make any sound. And the only thing that came out was gaga. Gaga. <laughs> Oh, how embarrassing. But that was it. And after that, I was fine. And we chit-chatted for the next couple hours um, in, uh, looking for birds. And, and I didn't spend much time uh, showing him how to use binoculars. I said, you look at what you want to look at, and you put your binoculars in the road. You don't want to look down at your binoculars because you'll lose what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And the focus is right here. And that was it. <laughs> And what, what was the best bird you showed them other than the bufflehead? Well, he he liked bald eagles. They're, we're in Vancouver, so bald eagles were pretty cool. The first bird, though, was a, was a really cool experience. Was the first bird on the path is a red-winged blackbird. And, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes the red is pretty hidden on the shoulder of a red-winged blackbird. And right. Jack puts his binoculars up and says, yes, but where are its red and he never got the word wings out of his mouth. I never got to finish the sentence for him, but the Redwing Blackbird, Blackbird hit a home run. Redwing Blackbird, of course, it's May. It leans forward. The wings go out. Conca. And, and just this brilliant display of bright red. And Jack goes, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> he gets it now. Yeah. Now, at least you showed him a, a red-winged blackbird and not a ring-necked duck. Uh, yeah, which the ring-necked duck is – the ring is actually hard to see. Oh, I I think I've seen it on maybe four or five occasions, and it see, kills me. A friend of mine got a picture of the ring. I'm just like, oh, you're killing me. <laughs> yeah. I was actually looking at I was actually looking on a pond right by my house. I was actually looking at a ringneck duck before I came to do this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he, Jack tells me right at the beginning. He says, "I uh, hope you don't mind. I'm not really too much into the birding thing." He says, "But you are the first real character I get to base my acting off of. Hope you don't mind if I watch you for the next couple hours." So no, go ahead. So. Uh, I, I felt pretty privileged to yeah. have him study me, and I thought that was pretty cool. So were, were Sandy and Al involved and all at the movie? Did they come out as well? or? Um, I don't think Sandy made it at all, but uh, Al made it onto the set, but not by official invitation. Al had Hollywood connections, and he paid his way. So he was able to be on set, and he got to meet Steve Martin. Oh, good for him. And, yeah. And so, you know, cool. what was what was kind of, you know, and, and here's the interesting part. 
is I know that Steve Martin, you know, he does the movie The Big Year, and then he and I'm a bluegrass fan besides a birder. And oh, so, wow. you know, you know, when he comes out with, with Rare Bird Alert with the Steep Canyon Rangers, um it seems like birding kind of put a hook in him a little bit. It it did. I think he was uh he was impressed by that there were people like me who went out and did this kind of thing with such zeal and passion. And I know he understands because that is the zeal and passion that he pursues banjo playing. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he he's comedian, actor, uh, music writer, banjo player, wrote his first novel, and he's really an accomplished art collector. Does mm-hmm. all of these things really well. Most people call him a renaissance man, but the real word is polymath. He's He's really... Somebody very gifted in all these areas. So being a curious guy that I am, I had to ask him, I said, well, did, with all these things that you do really, really well, he's, uh, which would, if you could only choose one, which one do you, would you want to be remembered by? Never batted an eye. Banjo player. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, and, you know, I, I'm, uh, I can't say I'm a, a fan of bluegrass, like other people are, are a fan. I, I don't have a huge bluegrass collection, but I do have Steve Martin's uh, Rare Bird Alert. And I like his, what I was most impressed with was when I went on YouTube to check out his banjo playing. And uh, I, I I got this video up of Earl Scruggs and mm-hmm. Steve Martin. Really? Earl of Flat and Scruggs? Really? <laughs> wow, legend. Is is that the one is that when they is that when they're on Letterman doing Foggy Mountain Breakdown? Yes, Foggy Mountain Breakdown. Yeah. Oh my gosh, was that impressive. It, who else is on that? Marty Robbins and Vince Gill and it was <laughs> it's insane. It's yeah. jaw dropping. <laughs> so oh, Bella Fleck was another banjo player on there. Oh, one of one of the cool <laughs> things though was uh with each of the actors had big trailers on the on set, and uh, I would walk past Steve Martin's at lunchtime, and you could hear him plucking banjo in the uh, at, at lunchtime. And uh, I was on my way to go back to the set, and I asked him, "I heard you playing uh, banjo uh, over lunch as I walked by." He says, "Yeah, I do that every day. That's how I wind down. <laughs> that it it uh, soothes him." Um, and kind of gets him calm to do, you know, the afternoon work. Mm-hmm. And and all of them, I have far greater respect uh, for each of those actors than I didn't go in with real high expectations because sometimes you get an impression of people who do movies and stuff, and and then you meet the real person and they don't live up to those expectations. So my expectations were actually pretty low, but they were they far surpassed even mm-hmm. what I would, even if I'd expected good things of them, it was even better than that. All of them right. very hardworking at, at getting things just so. You know, and, and the amazing part is, you know, when you talk about how the movie was and you're consulting, when you described your Ruby Mountain experience going for the Himalayan snowcock, uh-huh. I, I was thinking back to the movie, I go, that's exactly how the movie was. It you know, was. The, the bird zips by and they go through this V and <laughs> it, the, uh, 
The other thing, too, um, the owl scene in the movie, mm-hmm. I didn't live in Virginia at the time I, uh, of the big year. I, I lived in Maryland, and my parents lived in Ohio, uh, and I really did chase after an owl with my dad. Uh, we went after a long-eared owl in Ohio in a stand of pines in the snow, uh, and he, at the end of the day, he really was worn out and stood at the beginning of the, uh, of the pine grove. And he says, you go on, you, you get the bird before it gets dark. And so I walked walked into the grove. It's not, not a big grove, um, but I, I got toward the back and it dawned on me, you know, nothing is as important as my dad. And one more tick on the bird list is, it doesn't even come close to that. So rather than getting lost, I just looked at my tracks in the snow and followed my way back to the front of the woods my dad has his binoculars up like this. He hears me crunching in the snow, and he, with one hand, he motions to me, come here, <laughs> big smile on his face. And uh, so I come over, and he's, I put my binoculars up, and it's a long-eared owl, and it's leaning forward. And you know how a long-eared owl can have the most fierce, penetrating stare. I mean, it's just leaning over, and it's like the eyes are lasers going right through you. <laughs> Just about makes the hair in the back of your neck stand up. <laughs> it does. I was actually, um, oh, what was it? About six weeks ago, I went out with an owl researcher uh-huh. who's, who's mist netting and banding long-eared owls. Yeah. And I got to hold one of those owls. Oh, wow. That's and really a pretty unique experience. you know. And, and the most unique thing I saw from this researcher is he's also doing northern sawwets. And so we look underneath this tree and there's this, you know, all this tangle of stuff and there's a roosting northern sawwet. Uh-huh. He hand catches. <laughs> I have never seen anything like in my life. He actually sneaks underneath the owl and just creeps his hand up there and slips his fingers and out comes the northern sawwet. <laughs> <laughs> My life saw what all I got in Columbus, Ohio, uh, back in the, oh my, probably early 80s. And I remember a giant yew bush, and uh, it was like the first week of April, and, and then another birder was with me. He says, just just part the bush and look in the, inside the bush. I parted the bush, and literally a hand, an, an arm's reach away is a nor- northern sawhead owl. Staring right at me and just kind of blinks. <laughs> right. I've never seen an owl that close ever. <laughs> what, what I always love about Northern Solid Owls is when you find them, they are thoroughly unimpressed. <laughs> you know, there's a. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if they could do hand motions, they'd do uh, the Michaela unimpressed. <laughs> yeah, it's just totally unimpressed, you know. So to get back to the movie, so the movie came out so well, and I I think it it portrayed birders in such a positive light, which I was so happy about. Expected. It was what? It was far better than expected. I I I was um, even after I'd read the script, I uh, I was right in not trusting it because they they'd made actually quite a lot, quite a few changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even when I was on the set, sometimes when the, there's a, a hundred union people working around in a very small area, there's a lot of waiting around, but everybody's doing their thing and everybody waits for them 
to do one thing at a, at a time. So when the director turns to me and says, uh, we need a different kind of bird for the set here uh, to change the dialogue, and uh, we need something more colorful, I have, have to think, well, what season is it? Uh, where, how far along are they uh, in the big year? And it's a, you know a bit of a sweaty palms moment to come to come up with something uh, something new when you're not expecting it. Right. <laughs> and and so you know to kind of kind of put a, a bow on this whole package is you know you talked about the the possibility of doing another big year. Uh huh. Is that something you you think you're going to do? that you're going to kind of strive towards or? I would certainly like to do the logistics and planning, even if somebody else had the chance to do it. If somebody sponsored me and I could raise money uh, and still pay my bills, mm-hmm. I, w- I would probably highly consider it again. It was, it was a, a fun experience, but uh, it's a, a pretty big undertaking. Well, yeah, it's a it's a ridiculous undertaking. Is what it is. It's a good challenge. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, and that being said, you know, I was having this conversation with you know Ken Kaufman last week, uh-huh. and the idea was is you know a big year in and of itself, even if you do a state big year, can have such a heavy uh, carbon footprint and a right. resource utilization, and you know as birders and are taking big years, how do you think that we can balance those two where we're, you know, either we're buying carbon offsets or education, you know, how do you think we could balance those two out? That's a good question. Uh, Because I don't want to get away from that because it gives birding a different element that does not currently exist. It, the big year has appeal to, to younger people who also like a challenge, like to see something big and something grandiose in front of them, and want something that they can chase after. So I don't want to take that element away. But right on the other hand, um, the the way that you would do a more successful year is to have uh, stuff like you've got an eBird, people just recording uh, the stuff that they see everywhere they go. Mm-hmm. I suppose at some point in time it's going to get easier and easier to to do uh, bird entry. I know f- for me, it, I should have kept better track uh, when I went to the different places. Um, of, I kept checklists every day that I was out of the field, but they're still in a big box and they're still checklists. And I didn't count. There were no numbers or anything like that. Um so in the back of my mind, I have the the idea of someday formulating some sort of uh, games, uh, different sorts of games uh, that would have a bigger element to them, but would also benefit us a citizen science project like eBird, mm-hmm. uh, where you you would go after uh, after birds and, and count them, and and of course the underburdened Undercovered areas, we we might assign a, a higher value to a species, mm-hmm. so that way more coverage happens in areas that never get birded. You know, I I was thinking, you know, kind of something along the same line is applying game theory to bird, you know, to birding, especially e bird, absolutely uh, something like you know uh, akin to Foursquare. 
Uh-huh. The idea of attainments, you know, marehoods, badges. So you you you're playing this game. Yeah. Level up. Level up, yeah. <laughs> well, it's so funny is that you know, I thought first time I heard about Foursquare, I'm like, why just tell people where I'm at and what I'm doing? That's ridiculous. And now I'm hooked on it. You know? <laughs> I I'm the mayor of so many trailheads and birding areas. <laughs> But, okay, so you think that kind of moving into – so these games could be played a little more regionally or locally? Is that kind of the idea? Absolutely, because every every state has their little pockets that uh, don't get birded, don't get coverage. And it's not just the regions themselves, but the the times of the year, too. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I, I remember when I first started keeping lists on a regular basis other than the year list, when I started doing county listing uh, and month listing, I realized uh, February and November were my my weakest months of of birding. That's I have the smallest list, uh, so I started working on on birding at times that of the year that I don't normally uh, do it. But I didn't know that I had those times until I started keeping track of of uh, what 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 I was doing. And so, so you. Are you kind of thinking about these games being like a a, a a mobile device app, whether an iPhone or Android app? Is that kind of the idea? Oh, uh, we'd love to have it as that. Well, that's that, that's a good idea. I like. That idea. I, I I really want something that's that's fun that people can play that would offer you some kind of challenge and that would have appeal to young people. Because mm-hmm. I I go to the, all these festivals now. Uh, talking about a contest I didn't win and signing books I didn't write. <laughs> but a lot, of, a lot of the birders that I meet are, are older birders and even even older than me. And I'm, I'm really concerned about uh, getting the hook into younger people and, and uh, offering them uh, something that's uh, fun to do but addresses some of the serious issues we have in uh, conservation um, and uh, bird preservation. Mm-hmm. I liked it. I love the idea. Well, Greg, it's been a very fun conversation. Thank Indeed. you. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm glad we finally got together. Sorry it's uh, been such a hard slog to get me. <laughs> hey, that's that's okay. I, I kind of have this idea. And maybe you can put the hook in for you. I, I would like to get all three, you know, characters or main main players of the big uh-huh. year on the podcast. Oh, that would be fantastic. So, and I don't have any, you know, hook with 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 Al or Sandy, but I would like to somehow get those get them on the on the phone as well. Oh, that would that would be cool. And then you know, kind of tie a nice bow on the whole thing. You know, the the big year from all three perspectives and. Right. In fact, I'll I'll uh, I'll contact them and uh, and uh, see what they they think about it uh, uh, being able to do something like that. Oh, that'd be great. Tell them it was completely painless, right? Uh, it, <laughs> it really was. This is this is easier than I uh, had imagined. It it is easier than you think because I didn't want to have to read anything. I didn't want to, I, I just no. I I can't learn one more thing, and I didn't want to have to remember one more password. No, I, I I have a sheet of paper at home. 
actually several sheets of paper with all of the different things that I've, I'm on and the passwords for each one. Because the hard copy here, the chances of somebody finding that are far less than if I have, you know, some secure thing online. Right. Trust for a moment. Right. I guess being a computer makes me a little skeptical because nothing is really secure. <laughs> you know, and, and I kind of went the same. I went the the opposite tact. Is is I I just decided there is no such thing as privacy or security. So the heck no. with it. <laughs> you know, our privacy <laughs> keeps going away in chunks. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and uh, you know uh, this will be up next Tuesday. So okay. Cool. Well, thanks so much, and have a good evening. I know you're you're up towards nine o'clock your time, so. Yep. Not a problem. <laughs> All right. Well, have a great night. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. Right. Bye. Later. Bye.